there's probably people listening to this who are really driven in their life and they think that the more time they put into something, the better it's going to end up being. And it actually may be the more time they put into themselves, the better it's going to end up being. Emily Abadi here coming at you with episode 92 of Hurdle, a wellness focused podcast where I sit down with inspiring individuals to talk about everything from their big wins to how they've gotten through some of life's toughest moments. On the show, you can expect vulnerability, motivation, and candid discussions with everyone from top athletes to aspiring entrepreneurs and what it really takes to follow your passions. My mission is simple, to inspire you to be your best self, move with intention, and have some fun along the way. For today's show, I am sitting down with Will Ahmed. He is the co-founder and CEO of Whoop. Now, you all have definitely heard me talk about Whoop before. It's a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that tracks things like strain and sleep and recovery. And in today's episode, Will talks to me about where that idea came from when he was in college at Harvard. Before we into Will's story, a quick shout out to my sponsor, Athletic Greens. It's funny, the longer I have been drinking the greens powder, which has the antioxidant equivalent to 12 servings of fruits and vegetables, the more people I feel like are also drinking athletic greens. Just the other day, one of the run coaches that I chat with all the time, you guys have heard her on the podcast, her name is Jess Woods. She showed up to our morning workout carrying a bottle of the green stuff and I asked her, how does it make you feel? She said after drinking it consistently for the past month or so since the holidays, her body just feels better and I can't identify with that more. For me, when I start my day with athletic greens, I feel like my digestion is better. I feel as though I have more energy. I inevitably drink less coffee. It makes me feel like I'm more capable to handle that never ending to-do list. They've got an awesome deal for you. It is 20 free travel packs, a $79 value, absolutely free with your first purchase. Just head on over to athleticgreens.com slash hurdle. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash hurdle to get yours today. No code necessary. All right, now let's talk about Will. Back in college, he was a D1 athlete on the men's varsity squash team. And in today's episode, he talks to me about how he was amazed by how little he actually knew about his body. He tells me that he was one of the, if not the fittest on his college team, and eventually would get so deep in training that he was commonly overtrained. He talks about the symptoms that went along with that, feeling like he had mono at least once a season. That got so bad, not only would his performance suffer, but arguably his health would too. In today's episode, Will explains the goal of Whoop from the beginning being so much about teaching people when to take a break, when to take a step back, versus some of the other options on the market, which might encourage you to keep going when your body's really asking for just a little bit of TLC. We talk about the numerous challenges he faced with the different iterations of the whoop strap, as well as how it felt for him to continually be told that his big idea was going to fail. 
A quick note to be fully transparent, Whoop has sponsored Hurdle in past seasons, but I think it goes without saying that Whoop is a huge player in the health and wellness space. And I'm really personally intrigued, again, by the company's emphasis of taking a break, of listening to your body, of interpreting data so that we can make smart decisions based on more than just a feeling. As always, if you have any questions, you're really digging some of the takeaways, please make sure to hit me up on Instagram. It's at Emily Abadi, at Hurdle Podcast. And of course, if you have a hurdle moment of your own to share or you just want to say hi, reach out to me over email as well. It's emily at hurdle.us. And with that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I'm sitting down with Will Ahmed. He's the co-founder and CEO of Whoop. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. (laughs) How are you? Good. You and I share this thing that we both podcast now. You're 52 episodes in. I am, yeah. How is that for you? You know, it's a fascinating experience. I like the, the format in that it does feel like an opportunity to delve deeper with someone who maybe you actually know pretty well, but haven't kind of gone through the exercise of just asking them a lot of questions. Yeah. For me, it's been amazing to get to meet uh, so many fascinating executives, athletes, high performing individuals. Do you have a favorite so far? It's kind of hard to ask a podcaster to pick their podcast favorite. I don't have a favorite necessarily. I think the, the people who talk in great detail about their careers or their lifestyles tend to be the most interesting guests. You know, the Whoop podcast is focused on high performance lifestyle and how you can better understand your body. So uh, for us, those tend to be the best guests. So talk to me a little bit about what a Whoop is. You and I are both sitting here wearing them. You have two on to tell the people at home. So uh, (laughs) talk to me about a Whoop. Obviously, we know it's a wrist worn heart rate monitor, but it's a lot bigger than that. Yeah, you know, look, our mission at WHOOP is really to unlock human performance. So we believe every individual has an inner potential that you can tap into if you better understand their bodies and their behaviors. And we've developed technology across hardware and software and analytics really designed to understand you. And in particular, WHOOP measures strain and recovery and sleep. And you can think of strain as the amount of stress that you're putting on your body, the intensity of a workout, Uh, your daily activity, and you can think of recovery as really how prepared your body is for strain. So if your body is more recovered, Whoop will tell you to push yourself. And if your body's less recovered, uh, Whoop will recommend maybe that you don't exercise at all. You don't don't do much of anything. You try to rest. In many ways, Whoop is the first fitness product to tell you not to exercise. Right, which is hard for some. I think a lot of high-performing individuals, which, which Whoop seems to cater well to, Or go, go, go. You know, they're pushing themselves all the time. And in many ways, Whoop is a tool that helps someone like that dial it back and recognize, you know, the biggest way to take a step forward might be more rest. Right. All right. So then tell me, a lot of the big athletes are using this and it's in their wellness toolkit. What is in your toolkit aside from your Whoop strap? I find that sometimes the best you know, holistic approach is a fairly simple one. I don't have a lot of crazy stuff going on from a lifestyle standpoint. One of the most important things that I do is I try to go to bed and wake up at a similar time. Obviously, that's hard when you travel a lot, but we've been able to find that sleep consistency, which is this concept of going to bed and waking up at a, at a similar time frame, actually can boost all kinds of statistics about your body uh, without necessarily getting more sleep. 
It makes your sleep actually more efficient. It makes the quality of your sleep higher. So that's one sort of simple hack. I, th- I eat three meals every day. Uh, I don't snack at all. I try not to drink caffeine after 2 p.m. I meditate every morning, which uh, I think is a is a really powerful practice for anyone who's looking to, you know, balance their mind a little bit and balance <laughs> their lifestyle a little bit. You know, I, I probably don't drink alcohol as much as I did when I was, you know, younger. Do you use any apps or anything for meditation? I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm a little biased in that I think meditation's a single player game. And you want to develop a practice on your on your own if you can. That said, I mean, we know the guys at Headspace well. We know the guys at Calm well. Like I think those are both good apps for people who are trying to get into to meditation. For me personally, I just haven't used. Yeah. I, I haven't found as much value in using them myself. Okay, so it sounds like you're doing all of the things to be a high performer yourself. Were you always this interested in your overall well-being and level of fitness? Well, I was always into uh, sports and exercise. So growing up, I played a ton of different sports. In New Hampshire? Well, I went I went to St. Paul's, which was a boarding school in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. uh, and I played about four or five different sports while I was there. And I ended up getting recruited to Harvard to play squash. And so I was a college athlete in Harvard, and I was someone who used to overtrain. So overtraining is kind of the ultimate betrayal as an athlete because you're able to push yourself further and further, but all of a sudden you push yourself off a cliff. So in a lot of ways, starting WHOOP was uh, really the result of wanting to better understand my own body as a college athlete. And so I did a lot of physiology research while I was in school. I read something like 500 medical papers while I was there. Casual. Yeah. And uh, and I got fascinated in this concept of how could you better understand the human body? You know, how, how could you train optimally? How could you prevent overtraining? How could you prevent undertraining? Uh, what does it mean even to be optimal? Uh, how could you measure recovery? How could you measure sleep? And so all that research ultimately became uh, became the business plan for WHOOP. And if I think about my lifestyle as a 20-year-old college student versus, so today I'm 30 years old, I think it was just much more one-sided. You know, I was just burning it on both ends as, as a college athlete. You know, I would work out for three or four hours a day. I would be studying late. I would party. Like, you know, it was just go, go, go. Yeah. And so if I look at my uh, life now, it's just a lot more balanced. Let's talk about getting recruited to play squash in college. So first of all, like not a sport you hear a lot about. Totally, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Were you playing squash in high school as well? Yeah. How did you even get interested in that in the first place? Because it's, again, not a popular sport. Well, it's an obscure sport in pockets of America for sure. However, it's a fairly big international sport. My dad's Egyptian. Okay. And he was a professional squash player. And so I learned how to play squash in part from him. And then I got quite good at it while I was at St. Paul's. And uh, and so there was an opportunity to play it in college. You go to college and you're playing squash and you're saying you're like kind of burning burning the candle at both ends, right? It's like being a college athlete, you want to thrive in your sport, but you're also trying to like get something out of your college experience beyond being a college athlete. So how did you find balance in between like all of that training you're saying was a lot pretty difficult and, you know, having a sense of time for your education and then also time for your social life? Yeah. I mean, I I don't think I found that balance at all as a college student, frankly. Like, I think I just was go, go, go. I thought more was more. You know, the more the more you did, the better it would be. And look, I had a phenomenal I had a phenomenal college experience. I have no regrets. 
But I think as a college athlete, I was pretty misguided because I didn't really understand how to treat my body. I didn't understand the value of rest and recovery. And so, you know, I probably didn't ever meet my potential as a as a college athlete as a result. But the positive is it is it all led to whoop. So I've got no I've got no complaints. So pre whoop, though, were there certain instances where you just were like, wow, I've really pushed it too far here? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, there were periods where I would get fitter and fitter and fitter and I would be, you know, one of the fittest guys on the team, if not the fittest. But then like two or three days later, all of a sudden I could barely practice because my body was so tired. And that's the feeling of of overtraining for anyone who's truly overtrained. It's like uh, it's it, it feels like you have mono. You know, have you ever had mono? No, thankfully. And I've also never had the flu. So I feel like I okay, should knock so on everything like right now. Yeah. <laughs> but wait, when you say I'm the fittest, like was one of the fittest, if not the fittest guy on the team, like what are the benchmarks for that? Well, squash is a very cardiovascular sport. And so it's your ability to run in and out of corners for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And if you're able to do that for an hour, hour and a half and be able to sustain your heart rate at 80 to 95 percent of its max for a lot of that period, uh, you have a real advantage in college squash. Mm-hmm. College squash, also the ball gets really hot, so it's harder to end the point. Uh, for those who, who have no idea what squash is, like picture a racquetball court with a softer ball with more running, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's squash. And so, yeah, at various points, I think I, I was able to push myself to be one of the fitter guys on the team, but uh, I was walking a tightrope because I would I would overdo it. So you'd literally feel like you had mono. Yeah, I would feel totally run down, like exhausted. And what would the recovery time on that be? Typically, it takes somewhere from somewhere between a week and a month to fully bounce back from overtraining. So for you, when you go through these periods of overtraining, because I'm guessing it didn't just happen once. No, I mean, I did it almost every season. Right. So first of all, when would that happen in the season? Because then would that prevent you from doing what you wanted to do throughout the rest of the time? Well, you know, I'd still play in matches, but you'd have sort of subpar results because you'd realize on the day of the match you weren't peaking. Right. And so what did the people around you think? You know, maybe you need some more rest. Yeah. But, you know, all of it, all of it seemed to me in the moment to be very, it, it was all based on feelings and eyesight. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Will, you look tired. Will, how do you feel? Oh, I don't know. I feel okay. You know, and then fast forward next week, I'm like crushed. Right. But I didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. And what's amazing about what we do at Whoop is that we can actually see it in data. Mm-hmm. And and the real learning from founding Whoop is that your feelings are largely overrated. And there's physiological indicators that are like these secrets that your body is trying to tell you. And if you can measure those things, you can actually understand what is the status of my body. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the most interesting things we hear from from Whoop members today is they'll say, oh, I didn't realize my body was so run down. And yet I had three or four red recoveries in a row. And so as a result, I I didn't do that exercise or I went to bed much earlier or I thought twice about the international travel and how I'm going to approach that. Right. Yeah. So uh, so that's what that's the that's the tool that we've built. 
every season you go through this thing where you feel like absolute junk, then you recover and then you're like fine again. You're back to being yourself. But when do you kind of realize that it's problematic and not just like kind of coming with the territory? Well, I, I think I recognized it as early as my freshman or sophomore year, just that like I was someone whose mind could betray him. Right. Which is sort of this the whole point of if you're a driven person, you can convince yourself that you can keep going in a lot of contexts. And I was convincing myself that in really all contexts of life, I was like, yeah, I can I can train for three hours today. Yeah, I can stay up till two in the morning working. Yeah, I can go to the party on Saturday night and drink, you know, whatever, six drinks or, you know, something you just just go, go, go. And so I think you know, if I think about my life now, it's just much more thoughtful. Mm-hmm. You know, it's recognizing how all these different things in my life are actually affecting my body. This idea of my mind betraying me, though, is like so poignant, right? You're like, I was trusting myself to like, I was trusting my gut. I was going with what I thought that I should do. Yeah. But I mean, in college, you're definitely not at the point where you're like, oh, let's be realistic about this. Not always, anyway. <laughs> and look, by the way, that that mindset can betray you in a lot of different walks of life. I mean, we're we're just talking about this as 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 being a college athlete, but it happened to me as a young entrepreneur too. I founded Whoop as a 22 year old and started the company uh, at, in a dorm room, right? And uh, you know, today we've we've got 100 employees, we've raised over 100 million dollars. Like, there's a lot of responsibilities, and if I think about what I looked like as a 22-year-old CEO versus today is very different. But a lot of the same problems that I faced as a young athlete, I faced as a young entrepreneur Mm. where, yeah, I believed I could stay up really late and still be fine the next day in an important meeting or be fine managing people, you know, under not enough sleep or under too much stress. And, you know, I uh, I think there's probably people listening to this who are really driven in their life and they think that the more time they put into something, the better it's going to end up being. And it actually may be the more time they put into themselves, the better it's going to end up being. Right. You have these hurdle moments of sorts where you're overcoming, feeling like absolute crap and you get to a point when you're graduating. Are you having a little bit of that you graduate and you're like, what am I going to do with my life? Or did you, were you on a path until you had this idea for what Whoop would become? I don't know if I as, was as conscious about creating Whoop as it may seem in, in hindsight. Like I, I just became totally obsessed with this idea of how to understand the body. And I also, throughout my life, I was into technology. You know, I had one of the, the first Palm Pilots in my, my sixth grade class that could connect to the internet. I, I was always buying the early Apple products. And I generally felt that there was going to be this evolution of computers from, you know, from your desk to your lap to your pocket to being on your body. And that was something that really excited me. And I worked for a number of uh, summers while I was a student in uh, in finance. So I worked at like a hedge fund and an investment bank and a private equity firm. And they're all awesome places. But the question I kept asking myself is like, did I want to be my boss's boss's boss, right? Did I, would, would, would that want to be what I wanted to be when I grew up? And I didn't feel that strongly about it. And at the flip side, I kept finding myself thinking about this idea for a business and thinking about this idea for, uh, for monitoring health and that I was super passionate about. And it didn't feel like work thinking about it. So 
it, you know, in many ways, it, it seemed like a natural progression. Now, over the course of my whole senior year, it took me a while to really find people to help me build the business. I met John Capilupo, our chief technology officer, uh, fortunately, about a month before I graduated. Mm -hmm. and, and he really became a key partner in the whole business. First of all, did someone tell you to think about it like that? Like I was thinking about my boss's boss's boss and I thought about if I wanted to be them or is that just kind of a train of thought that you started to have? Because that's such an interesting perspective on yeah. career growth. Yeah. I, no, no one told me that. It just seemed like the right way to think about it, yeah. which is like, okay, so let's pretend that you can crush your particular industry and you can like be the person running this thing if that's you know do you want to be that yeah and uh, in a lot of ways I think internships are important for young people because they teach you more about what you don't want to do than what, what you do want to do yeah uh, I you know I have a number of friends I'm sure you do too who went down these career paths age 22 and are sort of like waking up to the fact that they've spent six eight 10 years in an industry that they actually don't really want to be in. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's tough to hear that because you, you realize like it would have been great if you figured that out faster. But it's also like for so many people who are wondering if they want to make a career pivot, this idea of how do I start over without completely having to start at square one with something like salary. And that's a big deterrent. But when you think of overall happiness, the last thing you want to do is stick with this career just because you're going to have to take a $20,000 pay cut. Because in the meantime, you could be doing something that you love, getting back to a place where, you know, you're making the kind of money that you want to make. Yeah, totally. And plus, you'll be better at it. Okay, so you're a senior at Harvard, and you have this idea about, like, finding really interesting fitness data. But the thing is, is, like, at the time, there are already, like, other wearables and companies kind of doing this. So where was your head at with that? Well, interestingly, there wasn't that much technology out there. So we're talking like 2011, I decided I was going to do this. Well, Fitbit was about a $40 million company. So it was pretty small relative to, you know, they just sold for $2 billion, but they were pretty small relative to what they became at that point. I actually met the CEO of Fitbit at a Harvard recruiting event. Yeah. He was showing up to Harvard to do the recruiting event, which shows you how early stage they were. And at the time, they only had like the flex. Like it was like you could just walk around. And they get had some one steps product in. and it was completely useless from my point of view. <laughs> yeah. Right. It was like a step monitor. Right. Steps the wasn't going to. Yeah. The steps wasn't going to tell me whether or not I was too driven or not driven enough. <laughs> like. And the other thing is that there was like about 10 million chest straps being sold a year. So the heart rate monitor. Mm -hmm. And so I just got very interested in this idea. If you could build technology that could measure a lot more about the body and you could put it in a seamless form factor. And to me, it was obvious that it was a technology problem initially. Like the technology did not exist. And we spent the next three years, frankly, investing a lot of money in trying to build that technology. So how do you even like go about that? It's like what came first, the chicken or the egg? How how do you even concept, I'm going to figure out how to make this technology? You know, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, first of all, you have to have great, you have to have great partners and, and great people around you. And uh, John, uh, one of my co-founders, is a really brilliant technical mind. And we came up with some strategies around how we thought we could do some initial prototypes and, and health monitoring. And I think the key for, for anyone who, who's actually trying to build a technology business is you try to figure out what's the first milestone that can then get me to the next milestone. So for us, we felt that if we could build a prototype that could really accurately measure something called heart rate variability from the wrist, 
heart rate variability for the wrist is this lens into your autonomic nervous system, which is one of the most important things WHOOP does in order to understand recovery. You know, if, if every business is built on a contrarian point of view that uh, other people disagree with, the WHOOP point of view was that actually rest and recovery was more important to an athlete or to a high-performing individual than stress and exercise, mm-hmm. right? If you talk to a coach in 2012, all they wanted to better understand was the speed of a throw, the, the, you know, the mechanics of this, the GPS of that. And I believed actually that was pretty much irrelevant um, beyond what they already knew about these things. And what they didn't know at all was the other 20 hours of the day. How is someone's body responding to the other 20 hours of the day? So that was the contrarian point of view. And as a result, we wanted to be able to prove that we'd be able to measure that. And so our very initial prototypes, which I can show you actually over there before you leave, our initial prototypes were really focused on can we do that? And so we developed these enormous, ugly, clunky computer looking systems. I mean, picture an enormous box of technology the size of a shoebox that's got a wire coming out of it that's then got a, uh, you know, that's then got a, uh, a wrap that goes around your arm that has sensors in it. And okay, lo and behold, that whole contraption could measure heart rate variability from the wrist. And we were the first company in the world to be able to do it. So but you wouldn't wear that. But you'd never wear that. <laughs> but we, we proved that we could build technology that could measure this thing that no one else could measure. On the rest. And based on that, we would be able to raise capital that, that said, all right, we're going to take this big, ugly contraption and we're going to make it cool. Yeah. Right? And we're going to make it small. We're going to make it comfortable. We're going to make it manufacturable. And then once you get to that phase and you, you're able to build the thing, then you tell a story about why you're going to sell it and so on and so mm-hmm. on and so on. So most of, I think, entrepreneurship is having this big picture vision of where you're going to end up. But having these very tiny steps to get there. Either in sport or some other scenario growing up, was there a time that you set a big goal and learned this lesson that it was kind of smarter to set smaller ones to get there along the way or focus on the smaller wins to get to the bigger picture? Because I think for a lot of people, they do that, right? Like they'll set this huge goal and then it it feels intimidating and impossible. And then you're like, I'm never going to be able to do this thing. And you almost have to go through that experience to understand the value of setting smart, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-bound goals to get to the bigger picture. I think that I was probably always pretty good at visualizing outcomes that I wanted throughout my life. Uh, Whether or not I fully realized that I was doing that, I've now studied enough about visualization to understand that I was, where essentially you're picturing very clearly an outcome and and you're doing that over and over in your mind. And sometimes people do this very intentionally and you can read all about that. And sometimes people do it naturally and it helps guide their behavior. And I think as a young person, I was doing it somewhat naturally. And what that forces you to do is it, it it heightens your awareness for other things in your life so that you take you make decisions and you take steps that ultimately push you towards that that end goal or that outcome. Mm-hmm. So all that's to say is I don't think it was quite as conscious as the way you described it, <laughs> but it is the product of, of being pretty focused about where you want to be. And then once you get there, move the goalpost. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, people ask me today, did you picture that Whoop would be worn by all these, you know, crazy athletes or that you would raise all this money or you'd have all these employees or whatever. And I guess what I tell them is actually, yeah, like 
that's how we got here because we believed we were going to get here. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to you have to picture that. And then, by the way, I'm picturing the next thing in my mind right now, too, which is how we're going to grow further. Right. OK, so you get to a place where you have this like shoebox size amount of stuff that can measure heart rate variability. And what happens to the shoebox like from that step? Well, right now it's sitting in the Whoop Museum. That's what happened to it. Uh, No, look, I mean, you try to figure out how do you take a lot of components that aren't efficiently uh, put together and how do you do it efficiently? And what does your life look like at this point? Like where you're living in Boston? That's a good question. So I lived with John, my co-founder, and we lived in a a small apartment together in, um, in Coolidge Corner. And we commuted every day to the Harvard Innovation Lab, which gave us free office space at the time. And uh, and, you know, we spent seven days a week working on Whoop and and, uh, you know, kind of being geeks together. And you had already graduated at this point. I graduated and John ultimately dropped out of school. Wow. But he was also at Harvard. Yeah. Okay. So you and one college dropout are working on Whoop in the Harvard Innovation Lab. And then we met Aurelian. And it turned out Aurelian uh, was a mechanical engineer who was great at prototyping. And he joined us. And so it was really the three of us for a while. And then, you know, probably about 12 months later from that first summer, uh, we had, you know, a few full-time employees. And we had raised some money. And... And, you know, we were kind of marching to the the beat of an early startups drum. Would you say that at the beginning stages of Whoop, you were kind of going all in on it, just like you were kind of going all in on college squash? Was there any recovery time from Whoop or was life all Whoop all the time? Well, it was an example, again, of where I wasn't really making that much time for, you know, myself to be sort of healthy necessarily. What did health look like at that time? Health looked like, you know, I still exercised a lot, but I was, you know, spending pretty much every free minute working and, and, you know, I, I still think I was probably blowing off steam by, by going out and, and, you know, sort of a party lifestyle and, and, you know, you, you, you realize, uh, over time, especially if you're trying to create something that involves a team that you have to become less of an individual contributor and you have to become more of a, you know, a manager or a leader. And in that process, how you, uh, how you appear, how you seem, how you act all become actually even more important than your individual contributions. And so that's, that's something that it takes a minute to learn. And, you know, in a lot of ways, getting to a moment of crisis too can help. Yeah. So are there, and I'm sure there are in any early stage startup, like, do, can you reflect on any of the like major moments of crisis? And, and did they at any point make you think like, what the hell are we doing here? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> we had a lot of those moments. I mean, the most memorable was probably around, I think it was in 2014. And Whoop was maybe 15 or 20 people. At that point, we had raised you know, a few million dollars and we were running out of money and I felt like I wasn't doing a good job keeping up with everything and my lifestyle was totally strung out and I was stressed and, uh, and I just, I, you know, I hit a wall pretty hard and I realized I need to completely reset the way that I, uh, I treated my body and the way that I thought about being an entrepreneur. And that's actually when I got, I got into meditation. What does hitting the wall look like though? You know, I was going through these periods where 
it almost felt like, I, I don't know if I was actually having panic attacks, but it just felt like I was out of control. It didn't feel like I was in control of the moment. And, you know, just notice that you're, you're kind of anxious or you're nervous or you're not, you're not in the moment. You're not present. You're, you're strung out. Right. And for me, that was just, it wasn't a place that I wanted to be in life. And so, but I recognize that you have to rise to that challenge, right? If you want to build a company, if you want to employ people, if you want to drive towards something that people haven't done before, guess what? You have to rise to the occasion, right? I didn't feel bad for myself. I just recognized that I wasn't rising to the occasion. Right. And so that's where I kind of looked myself in the mirror and I was like, we got to figure this out. And I can only imagine how overwhelming it must have been because you're saying like, granted, Whoop is much larger now, but we have 20 people that are like counting on you and you're paying them and they're getting like their health benefits from you. Yeah. uh, Yeah, totally, (laughs) totally, totally. And And you're like 25. I was, yeah, I was 24. I remember when when all this was happening and I felt like I I was sort of out of whack. But the good news is that it, it got to a point where I felt so out of whack that I knew I had to really reset and and where are you living at this time have you split up are are you living on your own yet i had moved to the south end of boston with a friend from college and i think he was in uh harvard square because he wanted to be closer to some of his classmates who were graduating uh at that time so john was (laughs) 21 or 22 right oh my god we're young you know and and we were always the youngest people in in the room Right. Like I was going to say, because when you're we hiring, we people, weren't hiring people who are 18. Right. We were hiring people who are 45. <laughs> so right. I, I recognized that I needed to find a way to be able to take on an enormous amount of stress and manage it. And uh, and so I, that's where I got really interested in transcendental meditation. And I took this four day course, which at the time seemed like a fortune. It was like nine hundred dollars or something for four hours of my life. And I went into it thinking it was a total ripoff. But honestly, it was uh it was really one of the best things I've ever done in my life because it taught me this this method that I now do literally every day that I find super centering. And did someone talk to you about this type of meditation, which is why you found this course? Or do you literally go on Google and you were like, meditation? I Googled it. Yeah. Who doesn't Google it? Yeah, I Googled it. <laughs> I What's mean, wrong with my right arm? Like you Google everything. <laughs> yeah, I Googled it. And and look, anyone listening to this, I highly recommend meditation of any kind. What's interesting about transcendental meditation is that you're repeating a mantra over and over again. And what that does is it effectively allows you to, to scroll through your thoughts because you're repeating this mantra and then all of a sudden you recognize a thought has now interrupted you saying your mantra. And you have this moment almost like you're in the third person where you can recognize that you're thinking about a thought versus saying your mantra. And so you get to decide, do I want to keep thinking about this thought or do I want to return to the mantra? And and sometimes the thought will be a really creative idea. Sometimes it'll be something that you realize that you're wrestling with. Uh, sometimes it'll be the stress of, of the moment or the day or the week, what, ha- what have you. And uh, that process of getting to cycle through these thoughts then has this separate benefit, which is that in your day-to-day life, you're able to zoom out of a moment that you're in and actually look at yourself in the third person. So I will find myself, you know, in any given moment saying, oh, Will's about to get angry or, oh, Will's about to, to be upset or, oh, you shouldn't say that. And it's almost like I have a third person that's talking to me now 
that's a step ahead of me rather than the opposite, which is probably life before this, where I feel I felt like I was um, I was just reacting to things. Mm -hmm. And as a as an entrepreneur, you want to try to avoid being in constant reaction mode. You want to feel like you're anticipating things. You're a step ahead of things. Right. So you start to meditate based off of your Google search. Mm -hmm. And obviously, like many things, it's not like all of a sudden you meditate one time and you're like, wow, my life is instantly better. It's a process. Like it takes some time to get used to it and to feel the effects of that and get to a point where you do feel more removed from the situation to be able to better handle it. How do you see this start to reflect in how you're feeling and like then in turn with your business? Well, it was interesting actually I mean, I still remember some of the first times I, I did the practice. And by the way, it takes about 22 minutes and you're supposed to do it uh, twice a day. Now, probably today, most of the time I do it once a day, first thing in the morning. Uh, but the, the, the interesting thing I remember about 22 minutes is how fucking hard it seemed. Like it felt really long sitting still and just thinking for 22 minutes and in some ways i guess it being hard actually tapped into my my ego a little because it was like oh can you do this are you capable of doing this will and uh and so that made me actually more interested to see if i could push myself through learning this practice and so some people will say oh, you know, I'm trying to get into meditation. I'm just going to try to do it for two minutes a day or five minutes a day. And I actually think you may lose the benefits of starting that way. I think a lot of the benefit is to force yourself to do this thing that's hard and to do it for 20 minutes. And for me, I, I actually almost immediately found benefits in it. So it was a little bit of a wonder drug in that regard because it, it immediately made me realize how crazy what was going on in my mind was. It made me realize how much calmer I felt immediately afterwards. And then again, I started to feel it trickle in to my life. You know, that third person concept, I, I started to feel that almost immediately. Hmm. And they say that something like after... Uh, I think it's like four days, four weeks, four months, and four years, your brain is changing as you meditate, which is a pretty interesting, huh. which are pretty interesting time frames. And now I'm north of four years. And uh, I have to say, it's, it's really a superpower. Aside from the meditation, what does your morning routine usually look like? Like what time are you up? What time are you getting going? You know, depending on the day, I probably wake up between 6.30 and 7.30. And then I, I get out of bed. I go take a shower. I take a really cold shower, always end cold. And in, uh, in Boston, a cold shower is quite cold. And I've found that's also a great life hack. It just wakes you the hell up. And it's hard to have a, it's hard to be in a bad mood after a super cold shower. I'll tell you that. It, Is it really though? Yes, absolutely. It, <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, anything that can naturally make you happy, you should try to do. Okay. Right. What else is on the happy list then? Well, we've talked a lot about meditation. That's known to make you happy. Exercise makes you happy. Uh, different forms of hot, cold contrast therapy make you happy. So sauna, steam room, sex makes you happy. I mean, you know, there's there's a whole laundry list of things that just naturally make your body happy. Right. And in general, you want to do those things. Right. Okay. So we cold shower, we yeah. out, we're smiling. Cold shower, smiling, get dressed. I go meditate on my couch for 22 minutes. Go back, kiss my wife, who's who's probably still sleeping, and I march off to the office. March off. Just like that. When does the exercise happen? Uh, either during lunch or at night. 
Gotcha. What does that look like for you these days? I still play squash pretty competitively. I'm also in two different leagues. So I'm in a soccer league and a basketball league, neither of which I'm particularly good at, but I actually feel like I'm getting better at both of those sports. So I encourage anyone listening to this to do you know, do sports and activities that you can keep getting better at, mm-hmm. uh, even if you're you're pretty bad at them in the moment, which I seem to be. And uh, and then I do, you know, I work out with a trainer once or twice a week where we do weightlifting and and simple things like that. You using the meditation start to see pretty immediate benefits in like how you're feeling and maybe how you're able to interact and like better handle situations at the office. Where is Whoop at that time? Like, am I looking at a wrist worn heart rate monitor or am I looking at a box of stuff? We were just about to launch to professional teams. At that point, we had been working with prof- like individual professional athletes. Two of our first hundred users were people like LeBron James and Michael Phelps. Was it just the promise of what you were building and what it could potentially do and the insight that it could give them that made them interested enough to want to get on board? Or was it the conversation deeper than that? Well, look, the secret to getting to anyone super high profile is to get to someone super influential in their life who other people don't know. Presumably, you know who LeBron James's coach is, you know who his wife is, you know who his agent is. But it turned out in 2014, you didn't know who his personal trainer was. And it also turned out that his personal trainer, Mike Mencius, who's a friend of mine, he spent like most of his day with LeBron. So it, it, the key to getting to these high profile athletes was to see if their personal trainers liked our product. Mm. And so, uh, you know, we were able to get introduced to personal trainers of high performing athletes. And and then, look, the technology has to perform right. Your product has to perform if they don't like it. It's not going to get to the, the superstar. What was validating for us, even at that really early stage, was that the trainers said, hey, this is really interesting. And the players wore it and they said, hey, this is really interesting. Look, with most things that are early stage, there's these huge swings of emotion, right? If you're a five-person company and you just signed this new great person, it's like, yeah, our company just grew 20%. We've got this awesome person and this investor's excited. And, da, da, da. and then the next day, it's like, oh no, someone quit. <laughs> we just lost 20% of our company. This investor's not going to invest. They pass. The customer isn't going to buy it. You can't be riding that sinusoidal wave of like ups and downs. You have to learn how to kind of roll with it. And yeah. so one of the biggest things that I try to do today is just be as even keel as possible. And look, that's in part easier because if one person gets let go tomorrow, we've lost 1% of our workforce, not 20%. But it's also easier because you train yourself over time to learn how to, to manage these things. Right. It's interesting. It's also like I've kind of taken that approach myself to dating. It's like you can't tell your <laughs> friends about a guy too soon because you don't want to get really invested. I think that's so good So just advice. keep it even keel. So these athletes are wearing the strap. There's a little bit of anxiety about it, but we're learning how to manage that out. And then it's seemingly a successful situation. Yes, we had super cool people wearing the product. We had super cool people validating that the technology we had developed was influential. At the same time, we were still figuring out what's the business model? You know, how do we make money? How do we sell a lot of these and things like that? And so there's so many layers to success to actually have a company that that endures or a startup that, that grows out of its startup phase. And I would say the phase from 
2016 to 2017, 18 was really figuring out what is that business model that we can scale around. Right. So yes, in a lot of ways, what we had built was a success. There was just a lot more work to do. When do you move from like from even from one to two? One to two is probably 2000. Well, look, I mean, there was a bunch of stuff before one. (laughs) You know, one was kind of that was probably the first product that thousands of people were wearing. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, a guy like LeBron back in the day, I wonder if negative one. one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was like an 18 hour battery life. And is this like one of those situations when you're like product goes to market and like there's a bunch of you sitting in a room and you're like watching orders come in on a screen? It's more like it's like everyone watching the server to make sure the thing doesn't collapse you know (laughs) it's like our operations team sending battery packs and bands to make sure that that the unit can be charged i think a lot of technology development and product releases you have it's it's really painful but you have to release something that you're a little bit embarrassed by there were so many things in the back of my mind that i hated about generation one like what well, look, it had a really short battery life. It was bigger than I wanted it to be. There was lags in how fast it would send data from the whoop strap to the phone. There were certain things that the phone wasn't able to do in terms of analyzing the data. I knew that that wasn't a mass market product. At the same time, it was good enough to get these initial people to wear it all the time. So you have this like kind of start before you're ready mentality. Look, it's a fine balance, but you typically as a startup have to release things before you feel like they're perfect. And that's in part because you, the entrepreneur, have an elevated sense of perf- of perfect, right? You're tr- you, you have a vision that you're striving towards. You view your, your current product as inadequate of. And by the way, I don't know if you ever get over that concept. I don't think you do. I mean, even with the pod, I'm so obsessive about the quality of the content that I'm putting out. Sure. And I'll send audio clips to someone like my dad of my podcast versus other podcasts. I'd be like, this podcast gets millions and millions of listens and it sounds like this. He's like, you're doing pretty okay, Em. Like, (laughs) you're doing fine. Stop freaking out about like one blip or one thing. But I think about it all the time. And hey, look, it's important. You want to hold you want to hold your technology, your product, your service, whatever it is to a high standard. Yeah. You can't let that prevent you from taking you know shots on goal. I know. OK, so we've accomplished version one and it's a little bigger than you'd hoped it to be. But you're probably learning a shit ton right now. Well, the other thing I, I, I learned at this point is how hard of a company I decided to start. You think it's going to be easier than it is, and it's definitely harder than you think it will be. The question is whether it's easier or harder than what other people tell you. Almost everyone I told I was starting Whoop told me I was going to fail. So it's definitely turned out to be easier than that. It was, you know, it's been much harder than you ever really can imagine. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that makes Whoop so complicated is that we're building software and analytics and hardware all at the same time. And by the way, the hardware doesn't sit at your desk. It actually is worn on your body. And it's not just worn on your body for an hour. It needs to be worn on your body 24-7. And there's so many there's so many challenges that come with that. Like I know so much more than I ever expected to know about wrist sizes and uh, 
hairiness and skin color <laughs> and the importance of having something be comfortable and uh, you know not produce certain odors and yeah look there were issues with gen one generation two was where we got a lot of feedback from from the market again there were still issues with it generation three I think is a very good product I think that there's um, there's uh, a bunch of really powerful software tools within the app that people can use to better understand their bodies. And uh, we're going to keep marching. You have a lot of really great advice and like kind of snippets to offer. But when you look back on, especially maybe like the past four years of when this has just grown uh, and you think about the advice that you've been given, what would you say has been some of the best advice that someone's offered you? You know, one thing that someone said to me along the way you don't have to listen to what people say but you should hear what everyone says and if you're starting something and a lot of people are telling you to fail or telling you you're going to fail you build up this uh resiliency to survive which actually takes a form of stubbornness i really didn't listen to virtually anyone uh for the first few years of whoop around you know a lot of things because just so often the feedback was you're going to fail or this is why this isn't going to work. And then over time, as it became more obvious that we were onto something, more people started agreeing with me or more people sort of reframed the way they were providing feedback. And it actually took some time for me to, to recognize that you want to surround yourself with people and really understand all their feedback. Now, at the end of the day, it tends to be your responsibility if you're the CEO to make decisions, but you want to make sure you understand all the different angles. And so I think that this concept of making sure you hear what everyone's saying, you don't necessarily have to follow it, but make sure you hear what people are saying is pretty helpful advice. And obviously, I mean, you certainly know what it's like to fail and how valuable failure can be when you look at your time building this company, can you reflect on a failure specifically that maybe was your biggest lesson or your biggest win, so to speak? Well, I'll push back on that slightly. I think failure is largely overrated in the way it's been romanticized uh, in in sort of technology or in life. But what I'll because the goal is ultimately to find ways to succeed. Right. So let's not forget that. Um, but what what the whole message of uh, of this you know, sort of rah-rah failure, I think is getting at is you want to avoid a fear of failure. A fear of failure is paralyzing, right? And and that the reason that people can look back on failure so positively in many contexts is they realize they've failed and they're still there. And I think that in turn gives you more confidence to do the next thing. I think a fear of failure is paralyzing and you want to you want to try to overcome that at all costs. And by the way, I think it's being taught really poorly to young people. Mm. I I remember being quite afraid to start Whoop and, you know, really trying to block out what a lot of people were saying to me when I founded the company. And I, in hindsight, I look back and I, I was like, wow, I, I actually had a lot of, uh, you know, I, I had a lot of drive to still do it. And I, I can only imagine how discouraging it would be for most people who have something pretty interesting that they want to try to start to get all that sort of negative feedback and to sort of feel like, oh, you're going to fail and, and God forbid you fail. So I think the way that schools package um, risk needs to be rethought. 
uh, it's something I think about a lot anyway. But anyway, back to your question. I think fear of failure is paralyzing. I think you can learn a lot from mistakes. I think you can learn a ton from rejection, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, You know, you definitely don't want to be afraid of rejection. Uh, whether it's it's going out and trying to find great people and them telling you they don't want to work with you or they don't want to invest in you, uh, you got to keep taking shots on goal, right? Failure is great, but I think it's more like don't have a fear of rejection. Don't have a fear of mistakes. Learn from those things. And then, you know, really try to avoid failure, right? Any like try to win. Any landmark rejections then? Oh, I mean, look, I've, you know, it, the, the, again, the headlines, we've raised all this money, but like there's hundreds of investors out there who have passed on whoop, right? Mm-hmm. Like those, those tend to be the most memorable. I, I vividly remember certain people who, who told me with so much confidence how Nike was going to kill us or Apple was going to kill us or, you know, fill in the blank was going to kill us. But here we are. Yeah, we're still going. <laughs> you know, a lot of it's also survive. Yeah. Survive in advance. I, what I gather from our conversation is kind of like two large hurdle moments, both in college when you're kind of hitting these what feel like overtraining spells of mono-like symptoms, and <laughs> also when you're in the early phases of whoop and you're like having what feel like anxiety attacks and you lean into meditation. So at either of those pinnacle points in your in your life, those hurdle moments, if you have an opportunity to really look back at uh, at the will at that time and offer him a piece of advice right now. What do you think you would tell yourself then? I mean, keep going, right? Like learn, learn from these moments. It's a lot of the theme that we've been talking about, but I feel pretty grateful for both of those things. You know, God forbid I was a super successful college athlete. Maybe I wouldn't have started Whoop. And God, <laughs> that would have been such a bummer. I really love Whoop. Um, or uh, yeah, like I, I think I only... I think I only learned to meditate because I hit sort of a, a moment of rock bottom where I had to force myself out of it. Back to your theme on failure for a second. Those are the ways I think to look at a moment of down, right? And sort of look at, okay, well, because you got to this point in time, you were able to build something really positive out of it. I also think it's butterfly effect. You can't go back and change one thing and still end up where you are today. I don't have many regrets in that regard. I love it. Thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with me. Yeah, thank you. It's been fun. Please take a moment and leave a quick review of the podcast by clicking the link with the description to this episode. We all face multiple hurdles in life. I want to hear about yours. Reach out to me at emily at hurdle.us. Connect with the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at hurdle podcast. Will, how do they find you? How do they keep up with you? Where do they find Whoop? Give me the details. Find us uh, online, whoop.com. You can uh, find us on social media at whoop, W-H-O-O-P. And you can find me on social media at Will Ahmed, W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D. I am at Emily Abadi. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.